morning to exalt you. I thank you uh, for the privilege of being created in your image and then being recreated again in Christ to do exactly what we just did, which was to exalt you, to worship you. Um, there is no greater privilege than to worship you. I thank you that you have made us for your presence, that you have made us to, to be with you and to commune with you. Um, you are the treasure of great price, Jesus. And we, this morning, with one heart, I pray, would just give up everything else, sell everything that we have to gain you again. Um, we love you. We pray that this morning that you would do what only you could do. I pray that you would set captives free. I pray that you would shine light into dark hearts. I pray you would make dead hearts alive. And I pray, Father, that you would cause us to leave here with joy and excitement about what you have done. A joy and an excitement that would cause us to run out and tell the world about you. Um, strengthen our hearts today. Whatever we've brought in here this morning, we pray that the presence of your Holy Spirit would break off uh, and help us to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily besets us again and again and again. But Jesus, you set us free again and again and again. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you are alive. So have your way today among us, we pray, risen Christ, high and exalted above all else. We love you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. You got your Bibles, grab them. You can go to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and Luke 24. We will get there eventually, Lord willing. This morning, uh, as we're going through our doctrinal statement here over the summer, we've got a couple more to go. Um, this morning will be the Bible and then in, uh, or the scripture itself, and then in a couple weeks we'll be looking at the church and then the eternal state heaven and hell the week after that, and so we should be wrapped up with it by the, end of, by the end of August. Let me jump right in and read uh, our brief doctrinal statement on the Bible at the top of the handout that hopefully most of you received. Uh, it is in the bold letters at the top. It says, we believe the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the verbally inspired word of God and the final authority for faith and life. They are inerrant in the original writings infallible, and God-breathed. Again, it's, it's fairly short as we've gone through this. This is why we've, we have uh, supplemented it um, and why we're preaching on it is because we want to talk about and expand all that we mean by those two brief sentences, and there is a lot more uh, that could be said. When I was first um, looking at this this morning and talking about what do you say from the Scriptures about the Scriptures themselves, um, where I was first kind of uh, aiming to go was just breaking down for you a lot of words, a lot of true words that are used about the Bible, that it, um, it's inerrancy, it's infallibility, it's clarity, it's necessity, it's sufficiency, it's authority. Um, all those things are good and they're true and they are important. Um, the Bible is inerrant, meaning that there's nothing in it that is contrary to fact. It is infallible, meaning that it will not fail. And so it is trustworthy in regards to its clarity, um, that all those uh, who want to understand it can. It's written in such a way that it's not hidden in some sort of secret code or something that you have to decipher, but uh, the sentences and the language make sense. And if you read it, uh, just simply seeking God's help and asking him to, to help you and be willing to follow it, you can understand it. It's necessity that while um, the existence of God uh, is seen in creation, is able to be known through creation itself, is that the Bible is uh, necessary. It is a necessity for understanding the gospel uh, and maintaining spiritual life that God has given it to us for a reason. It's sufficiency that in it we have everything we need for life and godliness. Okay? All the great and precious promises contained within it um, are sufficient for everything that we might need in this life and its authority that it has power to speak and to actually change circumstances and people and people's hearts. We believe all those things to be true. I was also going to talk about uh, just a little bit about why you can trust it, that, uh, um, that in regards to um, 
the Bible's inspiration, the way that God has preserved it throughout the years. When you study that stuff, it's absolutely incredible. Very briefly, there are two primary things that people look at in regards to the accuracy of historic text. One is how many copies uh, you have of a manuscript, and then secondly, how closely, time-wise, like in history, were those, were those copies of those manuscripts written from the time that the event, that the event occurred. And again, we're not, we don't have time to go into all this, but let me just say that the Bible stands alone. It stands alone in regards to being a historically accurate and trustworthy document, is that we have many copies of the original manuscripts, and they were written within just a few years of the actual events themselves. In fact, any other document from history that a man would want to put out there um, as the most uh, accurate document, it pales in comparison to, to the proof and the text that we have about the Bible. However, so I, I wanted to talk about all that. That was basically going to be my sermon. I was going to make it last a little bit longer than that. Um, but then I, I remembered a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Again, all those things are important, and I could talk about them, and it would be time well spent. But then I, I remembered a quote from, from Charles Spurgeon about the Bible, and it just kind of caused me to want to go in a different direction. And the, I'm sure maybe some of you guys have heard this before. I feel like I've said it before maybe, but Spurgeon said, God's word is like a lion. You don't need to defend it. Just simply let it out of its cage. Amen. And so, with God's help and by God's grace, and again, this isn't just this morning, this is what I pray happens every Sunday morning, but I just want to let it out of its cage. Um, the Word of God is amazing. It is amazing. And where I want to start is this, with Psalm 138.2. The Bible says in Psalm 138.2, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name, for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Your name and your word. And what, and what he's saying there, and some of the English translations translate it slightly different because this is kind of the point and it's hard to um, say specifically just one way in English, but he is saying, I've exalted my word just as high as my name. That you cannot separate the word of God from the person of God and the character of God, who he actually is. And throughout history, every generation, and ours is no different, everybody wants to come around and say, oh yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but then they want to they mess with God's word. And they want to say, well, it's got some errors, and I believe parts of it, and I, like, I believe the words of Jesus, but maybe not all the writings of Paul, and it's completely inconsistent. You cannot have that. Because anytime you mess with God's word, you mess with his name. And to mess with his name is to mess with his glory. And God does not play when it comes to his glory. Amen? He does not play. And so for us to play around and to mess with his word and, 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 to, and to cast doubt on it, and I'm not even talking about the world. Of course the world's going to do that. But within the church within the church in the day and age in which we live. And again, it's been like this throughout history because Satan's a liar and we'll look at him here and he's the serpent and he's still sneaking around our gardens trying to get us to doubt the word of God. But within the church, the word of God is doubted and it is not treated as inspired and as inerrant and as sufficient and it is sin. It is wickedness and it is the foundation of why we are where we are, not just as, as a country, as a civilization, but also as a church is because we have disregarded the word of God and we have not given it the place that, that he gives it, which is as high as its name. Every now and then, back when I used to have a roofing business, uh, I, would, um, I would have a contract when we would go to do the roof. I'd go out and give them, give them, give them an estimate or whatever. And then I would just kind of ask, I was like, do you want a, you want a contract? And most, and most people would, and I was ready to do that, and that's totally fine. But every now and then, I kind of like these guys. You would just have these old school guys. They'd be like... I don't need no contract, and they just want to kind of shake your hand and look you in the eye. And I remember one guy in particular, I remember him because he had this giant house that was yellow siding, and he wanted a bright blue Hawaiian metal roof. Hawaiian blue was the name, was the color. And uh, um, yeah, that's what he wanted. But anyway, I asked him, I remember I gave him the estimate, and he's like, and I was like, do you, you want me to get a contract together for you? And he just sticks out his hand, he grabs it, he goes, you're going to keep your word, aren't you? And I was like, I am. He goes, man ain't nothing without his word. And I was like, 
Yes, sir. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But that's, but what, what, was he, what was he saying? It's, it's the same, of course. Of course we can't mess with, with God's word. It, it reveals who he is. Um, every man is a liar, but God never lies. He never lies, the Bible says. And so, again, as I've already mentioned, if you flip on the back here, and again, you can either look it up in, in the Bible or some of the scriptures on the back. I want to go through some of them. I actually want to start at the bottom before we kind of run through it, just very briefly, historically, what, what the Bible says historically about the Bible. But at the very bottom, you see, as I've already mentioned, Satan attacking in the very beginning God's word, Genesis 1 and 2. God speaks everything into existence by his word and by his spirit. We'll talk about that in just a second. But then in Genesis 3 already, you have the serpent sneaking into the, into the garden. And the first thing that he does is he attacks God's word and thus attacks his character. And thus attacks the foundation of the relationship with, of man's relationship with God in that God is trustworthy and we must have our relationship it by necessity is one of faith, that we trust him, that he's faithful, and so Satan attacks that. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, first words of Satan in the Bible, did God actually say? Did he actually say? Just Even just, just a questioning tone. And this is where I'm saying I have absolutely zero tolerance, and I would say neither, neither should you, for anyone, but especially people in the church, that even want to have a tone of hinting that the word of God is not true. Zero tolerance for it. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Of course, that's not what God said. He said you should, can eat of all the trees, but just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you see how very shadily, sneaky, in he comes to twist God's word. And the woman said to the serpent, by the way, don't talk to snakes. Don't do it. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then she adds this, neither shall you touch it. He didn't say that. He just said don't eat of it. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that from the very beginning, Satan came to destroy man's relationship with God because man is created in God's image, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, and God hates, or I'm sorry, Satan hates God. He wants to destroy everything that bears the image of God, i.e. us. And he does that by getting us to mistrust his word. And it, honestly, this, this picture of what he did here, literally in the garden at the beginning, he is literally doing the same thing today. Slithering into the garden of the church and speaking lies. Not just lies to God's people, but also lies to leaders within the church. Saying that God's word can't be trusted, whether it be in the name of science or whether it be in the name of evolutionary advancement or whether it be, whatever. God's word is always true because God is always trustworthy and he does not and he does not lie and we need to be aware of that this morning and again just from the outset here uh, just know that if you come to Mercy Hill we believe the Bible every part of it yes every part of it even the parts that we struggle to understand at times we believe it and we give absolutely no leeway to casting doubt upon it Back in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, go up at the top of your page there. Let me just kind of, these are somewhat in, in order kind of historically and obviously it's very much just skimming the surface. But in Genesis, but in Genesis chapter 1, 
the very beginning. In the beginning, God, because he's always just existed, he's always been there, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. It's somewhat of a swampy mess. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's the Spirit hovering. I always think of a helicopter that just hovers. like That's the noise it makes, in case you didn't know. And um, it's just there, the Spirit And in that power of the Spirit hovering, God speaks. He speaks and he said, let there be light. And there was light. You talk about authority, the authority of God. This is what the, this is, when I speak about the authority of the word, this is what I mean. It it creates things. God's word creates. When the Spirit and the word are mingled together, that's how you got saved. Is that on some level, in some place, at some day, at some point in time, the Spirit and the Word were mingled together and you received it and it created light in your dark heart. It created life in your dead heart. And he said, let there be light, and there was light. Why was there light? Just because he said so. And God saw that the light was good. And then here's what he goes to work doing is the Word of God works and he creates light. And God saw that the light was good, and then God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And this is, um, this is what the word of God does, is that he brings order into chaos. Again, it's formless void, darkness over the surface of the deep. He creates light, and he separates the light from the darkness. When the word of God comes into our life, I don't know why we're surprised by this, but we are. We think that he's not going to rearrange anything. We think that he's not going to separate things. But he will. He will. If you want the word of God in your life, then know that some things are going to change. Amen? You can't receive the word of God and just have everything remain exactly as it is. But we, but we think that. We think that that's the way it works. It's not the way it works. And again, throughout history, if I can just jump ahead, we'll, we'll get to the rest of them here. But um, there is an obvious parallel that the Apostle John wants us to get as, you know, John's at, at the opening of his gospel. He says, Isn't, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was, listen, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So on some level here, again, in creation, you have the Trinity, and I don't fully understand all this, but it's, it's, it's awesome, um, is that you have the Trinity, you have the Spirit, you have Jesus, the living Word, who somehow here in the Bible tells us in Colossians that through Jesus, everything was created. And then in John chapter 1, you have the Word became flesh that came to dwell among us. And this is what he's still doing. Again, he's making a new creation. Just like in the beginning, he made the physical creation, but now it's all tainted because of sin. Jesus comes to make a new creation. That we are recreated in him. By, the, by receiving not just the written word, but the living word, Jesus himself, into our life. And when he comes into our life, it is light and it is life. And he begins to separate and he begins to set in order that which is chaotic because he wants us to thrive. He wants us to thrive. As you go on and you read the rest of the story in the, the Genesis the, chapter 1, the creation narrative, this is what happens. As he separates the waters above from the waters below, and there's fish, and there's birds here, and you know, there's land animals. He separates so that he creates an environment, he creates a culture where life can thrive because he is life, he is light. This is the same thing that he's still doing through the word. It's why we come every week and we do this. And I stand up here, and one of the first things I say is, if you got your Bibles, grab them. Because that's what brings order. That's what brings life. That's what brings light into the darkness. And every week, we pray that the Spirit of God would be hovering over us. That when the Word is spoken, that it would create that which needs to be created. That it would separate that which needs to be separated. But, but in our sin and in our flesh, again, this is, is so obvious. This is, this is what the word of God does. But we resist it. We resist it. Don't resist it. Do not resist what the word of God and the spirit of God want to do in your life. He is making a new creation. 
He wants you to be able to thrive and have a new life in Christ. But do not resist his word. Several thousand years later, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the next verse there, God has brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Um, They've wandered for 40 years because they were not obedient to the word of God, because they didn't believe it. They wandered for 40 years, and now Moses is getting ready to die. Deuteronomy, it, it, it literally means law again, is what the word Deuteronomy means. And so the law was given, you have that in, in a little bit of Exodus and most of Leviticus. But Deuteronomy is Moses, it's basically one long sermon. It's Moses restating the law, law again. Hence the name, and Moses is getting ready to die here. He knows that he's not going to be able to go in. Joshua is going to lead them in. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's where he's always wanted them. Is in our heart that we would receive them into the deepest part of us. And of course, we know that you know, eventually this is why Jesus is going to come and he's going to be the mediator of not just this old covenant that Moses was, but of the new covenant. And this is what salvation is, is that God, in salvation, he actually takes his law and writes them on our heart to cause us to walk in his commandments. But here in Deuteronomy, he says, and these words that I command you shall be on your heart. This has always been the intent. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Parents, do you do this? This is what parenting is. There's a thing today. This, uh, sometimes in my mind I go, should I go down this rabbit trail? And then I, I'm going to for just a second. There's a thing, <laughs> there's a thing today called hands-off parenting. Anybody heard of this? Some people call it that. Not everybody calls it that. It's a thing. And the, but the general idea is, is that it's a, it's a philosophy of parenting that's like, well, I don't, you know, my kid, I just, I wouldn't want to influence them. Or, you know, be, that's what parenting is. Your kid, just like you when you were born, is a sinner. They need influenced. They need molded. They need shaped. By what? Primarily by the word of God under your teaching. We, we are to, okay, I'm back now, um, but we are, to, we are to teach our kids at all times, do devotions, have quiet times with them, but not just then, because honestly, that's not enough. When should we do it? When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. When you rise, if this was being written today, as you're running them to soccer practice, as you're bringing them back from basketball practice, as you're dropping them off at school, when you're picking them up from school, when you're taking them to a friend's house, when you're going out to eat, when you get up in the morning, all the time, we're teaching them the word of God, which implies that the word of God must be in us so that we can teach them. That we ourselves need to be shaped by the word. He goes on, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts and of your house and on your gates. In other words, the banner over your entire life, over your life, over your home, should be that of the word of God. That is a home, a life, a family underneath the authority of the word of God. In Joshua chapter one, verses seven through, two, nine, through nine, Joshua, Moses is now dead. Joshua's getting ready to take him into the land of, uh, of uh, Israel, the promised land. He says only, God says to Joshua, only be strong and courageous being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it, from the right or to the left. In other words, it's not just like a side thing. This is central. Not just when you have time, this should control your whole life, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your, listen, shall not depart from your mouth. And you shall meditate on it day and night. Now, just interesting little nugget here, but just as in, in passing. But he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Now, they did have some scribes and stuff that would write it down, but it was mainly oral tradition at the time, and we can be thankful that it's written down now. But there's, some, there's a link here, just very quickly, in passing by, that it shall not depart from your mouth. And then he says the, the next phrase, and you shall meditate on it. Meditation is, is literally, the word for meditation in the Hebrew, one of the words that's used, is literally the word for murmuring. Because, not murmuring in a complaining bad way, but like when you're meditating on, you're saying it, like it's, it's on your mouth, you're actually saying it. Meditation is the idea of thinking with your heart. 
is that you, this is why we, we, re, we repeat it and we memorize it and we say it out loud. It was to constantly be being spoken by Joshua, both to others but also, but also to himself. And when we do this, so then you may be careful to do all that is according or, or, or all that is written in it. When it's on your mouth and you're meditating upon it, then you're going to obey it, in other words. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He has given us his word. If we want to be strong and courageous, we have to meditate upon the word of God. This is why we have so many cowardly Christians. It's because the word of God is not in our mouth. It's why... Uh, some church leaders allow the snake to slither into their garden and don't tell him to get out. And the world says something about, about well, science says this, or this smart person said, said this. It, it, they're not strong in the word of God. And so we cave, we cave to it. In Psalm chapter 1, Again, written hundreds of years after that, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So now it's not just on our, our mouth, it's not just in our heart, um, we're not just saying it, we're not just writing it down, but we're also delighting in it. We delight in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, again, with your mouth, but also with joy, with delight, with satisfaction. What is that person like that does this? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked, not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. So the man who dwells in the word of God is like a firmly rooted tree that does not tip over, does not break off in the storm. What are the wicked that do not have the word of God, that do not meditate, that do not honor God's word? What are they like? They're like chaff. They're just gonna get blown away to nothingness. They have no root. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Again, you come to the New Testament, and I've already quoted this, John 1, 1, but in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, not just written, but the living Word, Jesus himself. When Jesus, the second Adam, the better Adam, stands against the devil, he is tempted, not in a garden, but in a desert, um, as Adam was and Eve were, um, but him coming to make a new creation and being the second Adam when Satan tempts him in the same types of temptations, he always responds with, it is written, it is written, it is written. And every time he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, which I read from earlier, how do you take your stand against the devil? Is it in your own strength? Or is it through the word of God? When the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, and people were worshiping God in other languages, and people were coming to the Lord, like, like people come together and they go, what, what is this? They don't know what's going on. And the first thing that Peter does at the beginning of the church is the Spirit comes, you see the word proclaimed as well. He stands up and he quotes from the prophet Joel. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he goes on to quote that your, your young men shall dream dreams, and your old men shall see visions, and on all flesh young and old, men and women, I'm going to pour out my spirit. But he goes to the scriptures, to the Old Testament, to make that clear. The gospel itself rooted in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, for I delivered to you that delivered to you as of first importance that would I also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Do not let anybody undermine what the scriptures have to say. And then 2 Timothy chapter 3, and if you have your Bible, you might want to turn there because we'll be here for a little bit. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and then into the first couple verses of chapter 4. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Very quickly, let me go through this. Excuse me and unpack it. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's, it's the Greek word theonoustos. It's pneuma, the word for spirit, which is also the word for wind or breath, and theo, which is the, the prefix for God, 
okay? That it is God-breathed. As we already saw in the very beginning, this is how it came. It came from the very mouth of God. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is what we mean when we say that it's inspired by him, okay? Everything else might be about the scripture, but the scripture itself alone is inspired in that way, comes from God, and it is profitable. The word for profitable here, you you see it in the the, um, English word, you see the little word profit, and then a bowl, it literally is the word for riches. It's the idea of riches, that all, all the scripture, it's breathed out, and it, it, it itself, it doesn't just lead you to riches, as some people would say, that we're like, we use the scripture to, to get riches. That's not real riches. Jesus said, don't, don't, don't hoard up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but hoard up for yourself treasures in heaven, that the scriptures themselves that are breathed out by God, they are true riches. They are real profit. They are real profitable, really profitable. And he says, the scriptures, these riches, they're profitable for, for teaching, reproof, and correction. Now the word for teaching here is, is uh, literally the word where we get the word doctrine from. It means doctrine, okay, which is what we're doing here over the summer. We're building out doctrine, laying foundations of what the word of God says about who God is and how we are to respond to that. How are we to, to, to live and to worship and do life. The next word, reproof and correction, and notice both of them are, are somewhat, uh, um, uh, we would maybe view them or put them in the category of maybe being negative, that they're going to, to turn us. Again, reproof and correction. Reproof just simply means that which by a thing is tested. So, so fire, just as fire tests gold and a storm might test the foundation or a storm might test the root system of your, of, of your tree, in the same way, the word of God tests men and women. We hold it up to our lives and the word of God, it's going to come after us. Remember I said, Charles Spurgeon said, it's like a lion. You let it out of its cage, it's going to devour some things in your life. Don't be surprised by it. It will change some things. Um, for correction, the, 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 it, again, it's, it's somewhat of a graphic word, actually, um, but it just simply means to make straight or to make erect, to stand firm. <laughs> We're crooked. The Word of God wants to make us straight. Our way is crooked. He wants to make our way straight. And then he goes on and he says, for training in righteousness. Now this word for training is also very interesting. Um, It's literally the idea of training children specifically. In fact, the the root word, like the noun form of this verb word here for training, it literally is just the word for child. The root word of it just literally translates as child. So Paul has something very specific in mind here in regards to training children. I've already touched on this a little bit, but, but he's not just talking about training children. He's talking about training all men for every, for, every good, for every good work. But why does he use this word? Well, let's think, let's meditate a little bit, okay? So we just talk about what you're supposed to do with the scriptures. Let's meditate upon this. Why would he use this word that very much would bring to mind the training of children. Well, how many parents we have here? How many of you have kids? Yeah? Okay. Here's the question. What do you need to train your children in? Here's the answer. Everything. Yes? You need to train them in everything. I mean, think when they're little and you're just starting to feed them solid food. I don't know if you do this, but I can remember sitting there with Ephraim in his high chair and going, choo, 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 like, and young, you're making, what do we do? We're training them how to chew their food because we don't want them to choke. I mean, do I, need, do I even need to talk about potty training? You want to go there for a little bit? We, we have to train them how to go to the bathroom. We have to train them how to use a fork, how to use silverware. We need to train them how to cross the street. We need to train them how to not to talk to strangers, how to tie their shoes, how to speak. Sometimes your kids say something offensive. You, you don't say that. You don't. What do we train them in? Everything. Why does Paul use this word that has a strong implication about children? What do we need trained in? Listen, everything. Everything is what we need trained in. But, but here's my contention. My contention is that we think, well, I, I got, you know, I'm like 90% good. And 10% of me, yeah, it's a little messed up. 
And so, yeah, if I could just get the word of God and, like, if you could help, help me with this 10% and just add Jesus to my life and, like, I'll get into his word when it's convenient and then, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm good. That's, that's not what the Bible says about us. And we talked about this when we talked about total depravity or total inability several weeks ago about what the Bible says about, about man. But this is why we do not devour this book is because we don't think that we need it when in reality what Paul is saying here is that we need trained in everything. Absolutely everything. You're like, well, Eric, I don't know about everything. Well, let's, let's chat a little bit, shall we? Marriage? You doing that according to what you saw growing up or are you doing it according to the word of God? Parenting? You doing it according to what's culturally acceptable and what's convenient or are you doing it according to the word of God? Sex and sexuality. We doing that according to what we've seen in TV, movies, Hollywood, social media, or are we doing it according to the word of God? Forgiveness, reconciliation, love. We doing it according to our feelings, or are we doing it according to the word of God? And those are just some of the practical things. Let's talk about the value and the infinite worth of Jesus. Do we, do we show and, and act like Jesus because he is, not just act like pretend, but like respond? Do we respond to the infinite value and worth of Jesus as the word of God calls us to or just according to the tradition that we grew up in? Another rabbit trail I'm going to go down for a second with that. I, I understand that we're a conservative group around here. And we don't, and by conservative, I, I mean just we, well, this is how we worship. Amazing. Is it that amazing? Is it that amazing? The Bible says to shout to the Lord. It says to clap. It says to dance. It says to sing with all your might. need to let the word of God shape the way we worship and not just what we saw in church growing up from others. Are we set apart and do we know who we are in Christ? Do we try to find our own identity just in ourselves and what the world says about us, what schools teach us? Or do we find it in the word of God? As I've already said, do we, do we worship as the Bible would tell us to worship? Do we worship according to the way we see people worshiping in the Bible? This book is a lion. We're letting it out of its cage. Are you going to let it devour some things in your life or are you just going to run from it? Here's the thing, it'll chase you down anyway. <laughs> it'll chase you down anyway. Um, Paul goes on here in this passage. He says that we might be trained in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped. Complete, it's the idea of being perfectly fitted. Complete and equipped, they're two different words, but they kind of mean the same thing. They're perfectly fitted for not just some good works, but for every good work. First place we should be going is to the word of God. And then he goes on here and gives this implication to Timothy, who was a leader in the local church. He was, Timothy was kind of like an elder figure in different places. He was more accurately, accurately stated, probably somewhat of like an apostolic co-worker, but he was in charge of different churches at different times as Paul would plant them, leave Timothy there and go on and do missionary work in other areas. And this is one of the most solemn charges that you will hear anywhere in the Bible. It is a blood-earnest charge. Paul says to Timothy, in light of what he's just said about the scriptures, that they are God-breathed, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, here's the charge, preach the word. Preach it. And I love this word here, it's the, it's the word caruso. There are other words used, at different, in fact, there are 20-some words used throughout the New Testament 
uh, in the Greek language to describe the way that the Word of God is interacted with, and there are other places to be sure that it, it's the idea of more discussing or debating, those types of things. There's nothing wrong with that, but what I would like to just point out about this word is that that's not what this word is. This word for preach is that you stand up and you let it fly. People, one of the things, I don't know when I first said this, but a, a while back, um, somebody I was kind of teasing, so I'm not a good golfer, and so what I like, uh, but I like swinging really hard, and so I get a, those extra long tees, and I tee it really high, and I have a really big driver, and then I just swing as hard as I can, and uh, I said to somebody one time, I said, well, I like to preach like I play golf, just tee it high and let it fly, um, and I, you know, it's kind of funny, but I, I, that's what this is saying, though. It's not saying not to be accurate. It's not, saying, um, it's not saying to not be clear with your words and with your message. But it's saying not, not, everything, not everything needs to be a discussion. Not everything needs to be a debate. Is that the word of God needs to be proclaimed. And Paul gives Timothy a blood-earnest charge to do this. To preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. Um, and he goes on here, and I, we don't. This isn't on your paper, but if you if you're there in first or in Second Timothy chapter four now, as he's finished up the end of chapter three, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Verse three, four. The time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will wander and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now he's saying this to Timothy because it was applicable to Timothy. To preach the word because people already had itching ears to just hear what they wanted to hear. How much more nearly 2,000 years later? These days that he speaks of. Where people want to have it so. Uh, you know, uh, I, over the last couple months, I've you know, called out some false teachers by name. I don't, I don't regret doing that. But let me, let me just go to the, flip the other side of the coin once. Do you know why false teachers exist? Do you know why they're able to have such a platform? Do you know why they're able to, to uh, milk the people of God for filthy lucre, for, for, for money and for wealth and live in their multi-million dollar homes? Do you know why they're able to do that? Because the people love to have it so. Because people love to gather for themselves men who will tell them what their itching, fleshly ears want to hear. And while the Bible does not hold back on the judgment that will come upon those false teachers, it is also adamant that every single person needs to take responsibility for what they believe, why they believe it, and what the Word of God says, because we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the way that we lived our lives and the truth that we believed and proclaimed. Um... And so, there's no excuse, folks. We have to know, we have to know the word of God. Go to Luke chapter 24 quickly. I'll try to wrap up here. A couple, couple more places. Luke chapter 24. Jesus on the road here with these two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. It's after the crucifixion. Jesus is now raised from the dead. There's two guys. One of them is named Cleopas. Um, what a name. And another guy uh, that we don't know exactly who it is. They are sad. They're walking along. Jesus comes alongside of them, and it says that their eyes are kept from recognizing him in verse 16 of Luke 24. And and he asks them what they're talking about. They stop and they look at Jesus with amazement. He's like, have you not heard about Jesus of Nazareth? We thought that he was this prophet, mighty in word and in deed. And uh, then Jesus rebukes them and um, 
You know, he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Verse 28, and so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So we went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And then, verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? Man, I would have loved to be one of those two guys. (laughs) Have Jesus come up alongside you, Jesus himself expounding to you the scriptures about him. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And I just, I point to this story because it's beautiful. It really happened. It's not just a parable. This story actually happened, but there's a beautiful picture in it for us. Is that when we gather together, not not just on Sunday mornings, but on Sunday mornings, not just on Sunday morning, in small church, by ourselves, with our family, with our kids, with our wives, with our spouses, as we're doing devotions, whatever. This is, this is what I, I think God offers us. Is that we have burning hearts, but we don't quite see Jesus. But when we ask him, when, when we're hungry, when we invite him into our home, and urgently stay with us, we want to hear from you. He is faithful by his spirit to break the bread of his word and open our eyes that we might see him. This is why every, every week when I stand up here, it's like, yeah, I want to be faithful to what the text is saying and it's talking about different things and I want to say that, but, but not, I, I want to be faithful to what the text is immediately talking about, but all of the text, all of the scripture is ultimately about Jesus. And I want us to be able to leave here every week This is my prayer, that we would have this experience that the Spirit would be hovering over us. That he would help me by his grace to break the bread of his word that we might see Christ. And that we might respond as these men responded. Is that they get up and say, we're not our hearts burning within us. We saw him and again, it's just just like a glimmer. He's there and he sees him. And I don't know, it's just just a funny story on a natural level. It's like Jesus breaks the bread. They go, Jesus. And he goes, and he disappears from him. But that was enough for them. They're excited. They go out. They run out. They run seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples about him that we would run out from this place every week with the joy and the excitement of having met with Jesus. This is what I want for us. What I labor for every week and what I would I pray for and what I would ask that you pray for too. It's what we need. We need to see the living Christ, the living word, again and again and again in the written word. And even though we're disciples just like these two guys, we're blinded to it at times. But we need it to happen again and again. One more place, just by way of application, Ezekiel chapter 2. How many of you read Ezekiel this past week? Don't lie. Ezekiel doesn't get a lot of press, but Ezekiel... What a book. Ezekiel chapter 2, the call of Ezekiel. <coughs> Worship team, you can come up and we'll close. We're going to take communion here in a second. But Ezekiel chapter 2, God says to Ezekiel, he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke with me, the Spirit entered into me and set me, set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send, the, I send you to them and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, preaching the word of God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, For they are a rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and though you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks. For they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them. 
whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. He, he, he's calling Ezekiel and saying, Ezekiel, this is a stubborn group of people, but I'm going to send you to them to preach my word. No matter how they respond, you preach my word. And then he goes on, verse 8, what does Ezekiel have to do before he goes to preach the word of the Lord? Verse 8, he says, but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. He says, open your mouth and eat what I give you. This is God Almighty commanding Ezekiel, saying, open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, Ezekiel says, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and he had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and words of woe. Then in growing into Ezekiel chapter 3, he says, and he said to me, son of man, Eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll. And again, in the context, this scroll is the word of God. He says, eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Why do I share that story? Because in everything that I've said this morning about the word of God and how it works and what is true about it and its inerrancy, infallibility, all those things and everything else that we talked about it, in the end, it comes down to one thing for you, for you yourself sitting right where you are this morning. Here's what it is. Will you eat this book? Will you eat it? Will you devour it? Will you consume it? Will you read it? Will you meditate upon it? Will you memorize it? Will you get it down into there? So, because what we, the world needs is not just one Ezekiel, but it needs an army of Ezekiels to stand up and to proclaim the word of God, to preach the gospel. But you've got to eat this book, folks. You've got to eat it. Amen. Father, thanks for this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be merciful to us and that you would cause us to eat this book, to eat your word. Lord, show us how we do not live in the light of the revelation that you have given us. But instead we live in the light of our own ways and our own traditions and our own cultural implications and all those different things, Father. Lord, we bow ourselves before you this morning and we ask for your help, especially as we, as we come to your table this morning. And by taking of the bread and the cup that we're acknowledging that we want to be one with you, that we want to take your very life into us. Father, I pray that we would not come this morning and partake of these things without also saying in the very same breath that, Lord, we want to eat your word. Because the more we eat of the written the word, the more the living word, Jesus Christ himself, the risen Christ, by his spirit, will be alive in us. And Jesus, we need that. We need you this morning. Please help us. Please help us. Please forgive us of loving other things that are not as sweet as honey. That are not as satisfying as your word. We've gone after him anyway. Lord, we want to stop. Teach us your ways, God. Thank you for your mercy. In Christ's name I pray, amen.